Welcome to the Relaxed Running Podcast, the show that helps runners and athletes in running-based sports transform the way they run. Here's your host, Tyson Popplestone. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Relaxed Running Podcast. It's your host, Tyson Popplestone. Here as always, great to have you here. Thanks for coming by. Thanks for visiting if you're brand new here. Before we get into today's episode, wanted to give you a heads up that we only have three spaces left for the Falls Creek Run Camp in December this year. It's uh, I know it's still a long way off. Uh, we are able to take a maximum of 10 athletes just due to the accommodation that we're staying with. If you're keen, it's literally first in, best dressed. If it's the first time you've heard about it or you've been flirting with the idea of coming, the link to the Falls Creek Run Camp is in the description to this episode. Click on it. It'll give you far more details about what it is, about what we're getting up to when we're there. Uh, it's going to be an absolute blast. I'm so excited for it. December 14th to the 18th. You don't have to be a great runner. Uh, all training sessions are going to be adapted to your skill level, your fitness level, and your personal goals. So it would be an absolute pleasure to have you up there with us, um, uh, going for some runs in some of the most beautiful territory in Victoria, hanging out with some good company, drinking some good coffee, eating some good food. There's going to be plenty of time for running and plenty of time for socializing. Or if you're an introvert, sitting in your room, putting your feet up and reading your book, whatever whatever it is that makes you feel recharged. So hit that link in the description below if you'd like to lock in your spot. Also wanted to say a massive thank you. I was going through the stats to this podcast uh, just yesterday and absolutely mind blown. I knew the numbers of listeners to this podcast had sort of gone through the roof lately just based on feedback and people getting in touch. Um, but I had a look at the official stats yesterday and, and it's right, the the actual downloads to each episode of uh, this podcast has uh, on average pretty much doubled from the same time last year. And I was pretty pumped about numbers last year as well. Um, so as more and more people all around the world start to tune in, um, it's been really good because I don't know how the algorithm works, but it seems that the more love it gets, the more people hear about it. So if you are a fan of, you have been a fan for a long time, one of the most helpful things that you could do is jump onto uh, iTunes or the Apple Podcast app, leave a review. Uh, I'd love a five-star review. I mean, if it's been worthy of one and just to hear what it is that you like about that. So your comments and your ratings would be greatly appreciated. Um, yeah, thanks so much for all your support, guys. It's absolutely, I, I love this. I'm such a running nerd if you haven't figured out already. The fact that you guys love it as well, I mean, it makes it a lot more uh, exciting to come back here and keep recording episodes. Today on the show, super excited to have an athlete who I've admired from a distance for a very long time. Never had the chance to speak to him before. He's an American athlete by the name of Ben True. Now, let me read out some of his stats here. He's an unbelievable athlete. He's the American record holder for the 5K on the road. Their first American man to win an IAAF Diamond League 5K. He was sixth at the World Cross Country Championships and World 5000 Meters Championships. His personal best, 1500 meters, 336. 5000 meters, 1302. His 10,000 meter PB is 2714. He currently runs on the tracks, the roads. We get into all that throughout this conversation. Ben True uh, is like anyone who's been involved in a sport for a long time. He's full of wisdom on the sport. Uh, it was really interesting today to speak about the changes in his training throughout his career. He never just stuck to one specific method all throughout his career. In fact, when he ran his 5K PB and his 10K PB, the structure of his training had changed quite dramatically. So it was really good to talk to him about that. Also touch on his early history as a Nordic skier and the difficult decision for him to go towards the skiing or the running. We cover all that and a whole heap more. So 
Uh, hey, hope you guys enjoy this one with American athlete, first time on the podcast, Mr. Ben True. Awesome, man. Well, thanks so much for coming on. It's actually, it's been a little while. I was reflecting the other day on uh, some of the athletes that I used to run around with here in Ballarat. And one of the Aussies that I reckon you might have run against a few times is is a friend of mine by the name of Collis Birmingham, who yep. uh, he was on the international scene. And I thought I, I just jumped across to uh, have a little freshen up on some of your PBs last night. And I noticed that your profile picture with World Athletics is you leading Collis at the 2013 <laughs> World Cross Country Championships. But that's gone back a few years, man. What's, um, yeah, what's I used to roll with him and uh, Benny Saint as well. Yeah. Oh. Two of the two of the best blokes going around. Benny St. Lawrence is a uh, a fantastic fella. He was a big inspiration of mine actually because I was a uh, a little bit of a later developer in the world of athletics, and he yeah. started uh, relatively young and then left the sport and got fat for a couple of yeah, years. Yeah, he has a great story. <laughs> and then came back and just started absolutely <laughs> ripping it up at about like age twenty five or twenty six. And and once I saw him tearing it up at 25 or 26 i thought okay don't hang up the spikes just yet i'll i'll give it a few more years but um yeah that's that's going back man so so were there any other aussies did you race much against motram or was he sort of phasing out as you were as you were peaking no i mean i i i definitely raced him um but he was he was phasing out by the time i was i was coming up um but i do remember he and i raced uh we went one two in a battle in uh crystal palace many 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 years ago I didn't realize I didn't realize the stature that you reached with some of your times. Like if I had have guessed, I thought you were sort of a 13, 15 man. And then last <laughs> night, as I was reading through the the World Athletics profile, I thought, mate, I've I've cut him off well and truly. Like so thirteen oh two, couple of the uh, couple of Diamond League or Crystal Palace victories. Yep. If, yep. I, if yep. I'm not wrong. So so what was yeah. your you were kind of five thousand meters at the end of it. That was probably between five and ten. Like I saw twenty seven sixteen's bloody good as well, but I was trying to weigh up which one I thought was better, um, but they're they're both. I mean, thirteen oh two sounds pretty. Well, good. so thirteen oh two is pre super shoes, right? Too the the ten k was after the uh, the the super shoes, the, the fancy spikes came around. So you know, the the five k is probably a little bit better. <laughs> I, I did, yeah, I did like thirteen oh two. But you're right; it's amazing actually that you mentioned that because I'd had, despite being involved in in sort of coaching and um and, and this podcast now for nearly four years. One thing that blew my mind as I've started to get ready for, I was, long story short, I was trying to prepare for the Melbourne Marathon this year, but I missed an entry that I'm not going to bore the audience with all the details because they've heard me bitch about it too many times. But um, uh, one of the things that blew my mind was just how much the technology in that shoe department has has just uh, increased over the last few years. Like I went into a shoe shop here in, in Victoria in Melbourne a couple of weeks ago and I looked at the wall and I was like, I don't really know what I'm looking at because <laughs> we used to have like your structured triaxes and I was an ASICS man, like any of the GT series I yep, was pretty comfortable yep. with and familiar with back in the day. But then yeah, looking at that wall, I was like, man, there's, it, it's almost a, uh, I mean, it, it is a field of expertise for so many people. Now they've got podcasts dedicated just to break oh, it it's, down. It's unreal. It's unreal. The tech that's gone in now, it's, it's phenomenal. It, it'll be interesting. <clears throat> To see long term how how it handles, uh, because I think it does these new carbon shoes, super shoes does uh, alter some people's gates in a not so beneficial way. Um, but they're so much faster, and the ability to recover um, is so much higher in between sessions that 
it's changed the game for sure. Yeah. So, so you're thinking maybe long-term injuries people might face after just being exposed yeah. to these shoes over the years. Yeah. But I mean, the trade-off is, you know, back in the day when we trained in, you know, the lightest shoe possible, that was basically nothing. Uh, there are a lot of injuries from that as well. So, you know, it's, it's a trade-off that we'll, we'll see what, how, how it happens. What were you racing in back when, when you were running 1302s? What spikes were you rocking then? Um, I was with Saucony, and um, it was the lightest, stiffest spike I could find. Um, it was uh, it was actually their 1,500-meter spike. Um, I didn't like any of the, the distant spikes. I thought they were too flexible and soft, um, and it was very aggressive. Uh, I liked, uh, I kept trying to get Saucony to make more aggressive spikes. Um, and they kept telling me we can't sell those. They would break all the, you know, the major market for a Saucony was a high school, uh, runner, a college runner. And they were like, they'll, we'll tear all their Achilles. Um, so <laughs> I had to, I had to make do with, uh, some of the shorter distance spikes to be able to race. <laughs> yeah. How many years were you with, uh, Saucony for? I was with them for nine or 10 years. Gee, it's really yeah. interesting, actually, just to see how much they're, they're – I know you're, you're an Asics man now, aren't you? Yep, yep. But the Sorconi, um, they sort of they, – they tripped me out a little bit because, as I said, I stepped back into the world of running and knew very little about the shoes. And, and when I was at this shop a few weeks ago, a lady bought out their Sorconi uh, – they call it Endorphin Shift 3. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she goes, oh, these Sorconis are good. And I was like, I, I honestly didn't know that Sorconi and good – was the thing, whether it was marketing <laughs> or, or what, but uh, it kind of tripped me out. And what was funny was I put them on and I, was, I had a little run on the treadmill and I said to her, I go, these feel incredible. She goes, yeah, they've lifted their game. I said, oh, yeah. that's good. Like, and this is Aussie dollars I'm talking about here. But she goes, uh, and she goes, and value for money, like you're not going to do much better than this. I said, oh, how much am I paying for that? She goes, these ones are 250 I go, come on now, like 250 bucks. Like, Saucony was what you went to back in the day when you're on a budget. But um, <laughs> it's, it's actually incredible. Even ASICs uh, the, the last few years, it's been really impressive to see. Uh, we've got Jess Stenson over here who rocks ASICs. And there's quite a number of athletes on the international circuit now who are rocking both of those. But, but back Yeah, so they've rocking... come back in. Uh, 2019 is when ASICs really started upping their game big time and, and getting back into it and really putting a lot of new tech and a lot of new R&D into the shoes and, and uh, making them something special again. So they're doing really well. You sort of naturally just have to, like when it's interesting when a, a company like Nike starts just throwing out things like the vapor flies, it's been incredible yeah. to watch just the response of, of yeah. other companies. And that's one thing that I've found really interesting as well. Just before I hit record, I mentioned um, the the young Aussie guy, Cam Myers, who is running 333. And at 17 years old, back when I was competing, uh, like the fastest I ever ran was 349. And that was okay here in the state. Uh, but that would win a lot of races here, but uh, like on a local level. Yeah. But then you have a bloke like that go out and run 333. Then there's another New Zealand guy who stepped up to the plate and starts running around the same time. There's a Norwegian kid who's 18 running 332. It, it seems it doesn't matter if it's in sort of the, the development of technology or in the uh, improvement in times being run. There seems to be something in the air that when someone pushes something to a new threshold, people tend to follow pretty quickly. I know I can't remember yeah. the exact stat, but I remember up until Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile, it was something that was just never going to be done. And I might be exaggerating here, but I want to say in the next couple of years, like a, a hundred athletes did it. Yeah, no, it's 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 crazy. I mean, it's it's the psychological piece, right? It's, as soon as a, a barrier is broken or was deemed 
impossible or hard to do once it once it's done and it's been done by somebody that you've raced against in the past or is kind of like you um it makes it much easier to do it again um for for anybody and that's the same thing but i think also in today's connected world uh people just know a lot more about training know a lot more about opportunities to race um and they're just more educated and so at a younger age and they're able to translate that a little bit better i mean i knew when i was growing up uh i grew up in maine and small state in, in uh the u.s and i didn't know that running existed outside of maine <laughs> and uh so you know my training uh once i got to my first national caliber meet um I looked up to, it was Chris Selinski, and I remember him saying, you know, he used to run 100 mile weeks in high school. And I'd go back to my hotel room and add up all the miles that I ran that week. And the biggest week I've ever did was 25 miles. And like, I never knew there's somebody could run more. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, just the more you learn, uh, and you learn that, you know, what's out, what you don't know is out there. Uh, it's, it's, it kind of elevates the whole game. That's a really good That's... point. Man, he was a big inspiration of mine, actually. Where, what are you, 37? Yep. So you're a year older than me, so we probably admired a lot of the same athletes oh, yeah. growing up. Yeah. But <laughs> he was one that I liked because I thought if a bloke with quads and a torso that big <laughs> can run 26.59, uh, they're still hoping the game because that was one thing that I was definitely, definitely carried around the tracks. So I had I had legs that were designed more for a footballer than a middle distance runner. So <laughs> I saw him and was inspired for a different reason. But it's a, it's a really good point. Another guy that I'd been really interested in more recently for the same reasons that you just touched on, just the, the abundance of knowledge that's out there is, is Jakob Ingebrigtsen, just seeing how young he was when he started to really lay down some of the miles. I know he's got the two older brothers who sort of paved the path before him, was probably offering a, a bit of education on top of whatever it was that he was learning himself. And perfect training partners too. <laughs> for, for sure, for sure. Yeah. What do you just mean in terms of quality of athlete? Right, right. Yeah, yeah it's been unbelievable. So as, as you were growing up in Maine, when did you sort of start stepping into the world of distance running? Um, so <clears throat> I started just running for fun uh, when I was quite young. Uh, my dad was in, in a neighbor in our neighborhood was training for, I think it was the 100th anniversary of the Boston Marathon. Um, and so they started running and... So I was like, oh, my dad's running. That's the cool thing to do. I want to start doing the, you know, the rec program in town and, and doing half mile jogs and, and stuff like that. Um, and I quickly was shown that I was quite good at it and I enjoyed running faster than other people. Um, so I just kept at it, kept at it. Um, but <clears throat> when I got to high school, I also started uh, cross country skiing, Nordic skiing. And I really, really loved Nordic skiing. Um and so that was actually my main focus. Um, and so when I went to college, uh, I ran and I skied at college. Um, and I actually thought that I was going to give up running and, and just go the Nordic ski path. Um, and uh, something brought me back to running post post college, and and I ended up I ended up running instead. <laughs> so it was post college that you made the big move back. Yeah, yeah. So I took a year off of um, when I was in college, uh, I decided what's the one thing that uh, I wanted to do left in my running career and then be fine walking away with with, with never running again and, and focus all of my energy into Nordic skiing. And 
uh, it was break the four minute mile. You know, when you're in high school and college, like that's the cool barrier. And so I was like, all right, once I do that, I'm done. Um, and so I did that and I was like, I'm done hanging up the spikes. Um, and I took a year off from college and I went out to, um, Idaho and joined a, um, professional ski group out there and was like, I'm, I'm going to be a skier now. Um, but it was the first time I've ever trained at altitude. Um, and I kind of went, uh, gung ho into the training a little bit too much. I really upped the the volume and and the intensity and I kind of burnt myself out. Um, and so my ski coach at the time was saying, all right, you know, you're, you're so far gone with fatigue and overtraining that, um, why don't you take, you know, a few weeks off from training and, and just go out for, you know, 10 to 20 minute jogs every day just to get the body loosened up and try to help, you know, aid in recovery. And so I started doing that and I realized how much I loved running and how um, easy running came to me. It seemed like when I was running, I didn't have to think, I just floated. Um, whereas when I skied, it was something that I really enjoyed doing, but it was something that I had to mentally think about constantly. Um, it wasn't something that came naturally to me at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I made the decision, well, when I got my uh, energy levels back, I was like, well, I guess I guess running, if I want to take one of these two sports to, to the furthest I can, um, running is the way to go. And um, I became a full-on runner after that. <laughs> wow. It seems like I don't know uh, anything, to be honest, about skiing. But in terms of cross-training, I know a lot of athletes get on the elliptical when they're you know, trying to save a little bit of the pressure that they'd be putting on their joints with double runs and things like that. It seems like a pretty nice sport that if you're flirting on the edge oh, of yeah. two sports, that they complement each other really nicely. Yeah, it's a lot like cycling where you know you can. there's zero impact really on the body. Um, and you can really work the, you know, the cardiovascular system really well. And, um, uh, the one downside with Nordic skiing is you'd bulk up quite a bit. Uh, there's a lot of upper body strength that you, that you need skiing. Um, actually, if you look at world cup skiers, um, more than 50% of the top men, uh, world cup skiers, uh, the majority of their power comes from, uh, the upper body, uh, from the hips up is the, is, so they're more arm dominant than leg dominant. Um, for propelling themselves forward by like a 60, 40, 70, 30 margin. It's quite large. Uh, the women are a little bit closer. The women are more like 55, 45 between arms and, and legs. Um, but uh, top level Nordic skiing is very arm dominant. Um, and me as a runner, I just never got my arms strong enough to <laughs> really hang with them. <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting. So obviously when you, when I think of cycling, uh, as an alternative to running, the thing that puts me off there is just the amount of time and the amount of miles oh, and yeah. probably cars just flying past you. But in terms of the Nordic skiing, is the the training fairly comparable in terms of time to what it is with, with running? Like how do you structure the week? I do the more. I do more. Um, so when I was really into it in, in college, um, you know, my, uh, my OD, my over distance would be a five hour ski. Um, oh, wow. And, um, a typical training session would be 90 minutes to, um, a hundred and, uh, uh, 150 minutes to like two and a half hours. Um, and so you can do a lot more volume. Um, yeah. Just sure. based on the fact that you're not putting so much pressure through the joints. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Man, that's really interesting. So you're obviously at college. Yeah. It's not like you're an incredibly late developer. Like at that time to be breaking a four minute mile at what you would have been 21, 22, maybe even younger. 
it was yeah it'd be my it was my third year my junior year so yeah probably 2021 yeah and and what did your training look like at the time because it's really interesting to hear that mostly nordic skiing (laughs) (laughs) so so how i would break up the 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 year is that you know in the fall would be cross-country season uh for for running and, and i'd do that fully and then um ncaa's was always the um Monday before Thanksgiving, so um, late November, um, and I'd race NCAA cross, hop on a plane, and fly to uh, Montana where I do my first ski race the day before Thanksgiving, like three or four days later. Um, having no time on snow, having no time, I just go right from cross country running to cross country skiing, ski the whole winter, um, and I'd you know, start off not being very good skier, obviously, um, and then start getting better and better throughout the season. More time I was skiing, uh, and then immediately switch at the end to going back to running. So I like very segmented uh, my my year uh, and focused strictly on on each one. So uh, when I ran, you know, when I'd run fast times on the track, I never ran in college. Probably how fast I should have run. Um, but it would always be, you know, within two months of first run of of the year for a while from uh, coming off the ski season. Gee, yeah. so what coming back off the ski season onto the track se- season, you were, uh, I know you said your arms never really took off like a Nordic ski should have, but surely you were packing a little bit on the oh, start yeah. line compared to some yeah. of those other runners. Yeah. So typically, I remember, <clears throat> I would, I, um, in cross, I would typically for for running, I'd typically be like uh, one sixty five pounds, um, and then I'd gain twenty pounds throughout the winter to to bulk up, and then by track, I may have been able to lose ten pounds. I may have been like high one seventies, um, and then it'd take all summer to shed the weight back, and then just start it back <laughs> over again. <laughs> it must have been so frustrating for your college coaches, was it, to see the, yeah, the sure. potential that you had and the fact you're running four minute miles at twenty, um, and, and to be leaning towards skiing. What What do you think it was? Like you just felt like the appeal of running at that time wasn't there. Yeah, it was always a um, love hate relationship with running growing up. It was always something that <clears throat> other people told me I was really good at. And I knew that I was good at it because I was winning races, right? Um, but it was more I was doing it because other people told me I should do it. Whereas skiing was something I did because I really enjoyed it. Um, so skiing was for me and running was for other people. Um, and it wasn't until <clears throat> I stepped back from running and, and said, I'm not ever running again, um, that I was able to shed that aspect of it um, and shed that I was no longer doing it for other people, but now I was doing it for my for my own goals, and my own desires, um, and that was the only way that I was able to pick running back up. Yeah. So Maine, I've never been to Maine, but uh, assume is it the one? It's a, is it a couple of hours or uh, outside of New York? Like you mentioned, Boston was relatively close before as well. So yeah. So I grew up about two hours. I grew up in southern Maine, so it was about two hours north of Boston. Yeah. Oh, sure. Okay. So yeah. the, yeah, cause just the introduction. Most people to... call it Canada, but you know, it's, it's Maine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. What you, what you're trying to avoid that, t- that title or is it a, yeah. <laughs> is there actually a little conjecture as to where it is? No, I mean, we're ba- Maine was basically surrounded by Canada. Uh, but yeah, no, we're. <laughs> yeah. I would, I would claim, I would claim American over Canada. Yeah. As well. I'm so sorry to all our Canadian <laughs> listeners. It's just a little bit of a soft spot in my heart for the U S. So, uh, okay. So, 
there came a point where for you, like you got lured back into the the world of running. And then from there, how old were you when you decided, okay, well, I'm, I'm back. This is going to be my focus now. Um, so I graduated from college in uh, 2009 um, and um, went out to the Oregon Track Club out in Eugene immediately and uh, ran for them for a year. Realized I hated being on the West Coast and it just wasn't the scenario for me um, and moved back to my college town Um Originally to train by myself and do it my own, um, but luckily a, uh, a little group formed um, out there, and I've been in Hanover, New Hampshire ever since. <laughs> so, so what was it about the West Side that you, you didn't enjoy? Uh, I don't know. I think I'm just a New Englander through and through. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a homeboy, and so <laughs> I really like you know the Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, uh, New England area, and... Um, the West Coast was just too different for me. Uh, Eugene, Oregon was um, too big of a city. Um, for example, the I lived right next to the University of Oregon's football stadium. And the football stadium could hold more people than the entire city of Portland, Maine, which is the largest city in, Portland, in, in Maine. Um, and I just couldn't deal with so many people around me. <laughs> and so I, I had to get out of there. <laughs> well, it, it blows my mind about the, um, the U S college system, like here in, uh, or university college in Australia. I mean, we've got our sporting competitions, but mate, like good luck trying to fill up a basketball stadium, let alone a, a football stadium with uh, <laughs> fans for college sport. It really blows my mind. I actually, uh, I went to Eugene, my brother-in-law lives in, in a place called Medford in Oregon. He married yep. an American girl. Um, so, so the Americans won one of, uh, from us and, and we've been over there quite a few times just to catch up with him. And, uh, I know what you mean. It was the old, uh, actually it wasn't the football stadium we saw. We went and saw Haywood Field before they had done it oh, all yeah. up. And yep. I, I kind of fell in love with it because obviously, as you can see here, I'm like, I'm such a, yep. like anyone our age, I'm sure, or anyone in the running world, there was a, a little bit of an allure of Prefontaine back in the day. So to go there and see the sites, I kind of fell in love with it, but, um, obviously it's, it's, it, I mean, probably the weather in Australia is a little more uh, comparable to the West Coast of America than going from the East Coast of America yeah. to the West Coast. So at least that part I, I had on side. But there were some good athletes training around then. I think um, I've completely blanked on his name, but we had an 800-meter runner, Lockie something, that was training in Oregon back in the day. I think he was like a 145 man. He went to, to Oregon. I don't know if that rings any bells. No, so um, so Nick Simmons was there when I when I was there yes. um, for the year. Um, and who was the other big uh, eight hundred meter runner? Um, Christian Smith was mm -hmm. there. He he um, and um, I think those were like the two big eighteen hundred meter guys. Yeah, um, they were there when I was there. And yeah. was Jordan Jordan Hussey and and that she was after. So oh, she okay. was, she might have been in university at the U of O at that time, yeah. uh, but she wasn't part of the Oregon Track Club or anything like that. Yeah. And what was the, what yeah. was the track club like? Because from, from Australia, I look at the idea of Oregon Track Club and think, mate, that's the dream. Like if I was running <laughs> faster, I would have, and got any offers, I would have been there with you. But unfortunately, I wasn't running a sub four minute mile and I was no good at skiing. So I was limited for <laughs> options. <laughs> but uh, in terms of culture, so was that back in the day, was that Salazar looking after you guys? No. Um, so that was, um, Mark Roland. Um, oh, right. he was, it was like his first year or his second year of coaching 
um, was when I was there. Um, and so Frank Gagliano uh, was the outgoing coach and he was the one that recruited me. Um, and then Mark Rowan was there and, and I really enjoyed Mark Rowan. Um, he was going from a program where there was very few athletes to a program that we had Oregon uh, track at the time was 20 plus athletes. Um, and so I never worked with Mark Rowland on a day-to-day basis. Um, it was like assistance coaches that would work with me. Um, and I don't know, I, we just kind of, the group that I was training with kind of felt like we were kind of tossed aside and kind of forgotten about. Um, and so made some great friends, uh, guys that I was training against, uh, training with, but it was, um, didn't feel like a full cohesive team. It was very partialed out teams, um, kind of squads that, that trained together. Um, and so it wasn't the, the same atmosphere that I was looking for. Sure. And, and do you mean that it was separated based on how coaches perceived talent at the time? So they had a certain level of athlete that was like, okay, this athlete's going somewhere. This athlete's maybe not there yet. Uh, probably a bit of that and probably a bit of, I mean, between that and distance, like what, what event you would be doing. Um, but the focus was definitely on, um, uh, Lauren Fleshman, um, who was, who was there at the time, uh, Sally Kipiego, who was there, um, and, uh, Nick Simmons. Those were like the, the people that, you know, Mark Rowan really had focus on and everybody else kind of was doing their own thing off the side. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very strange that, um, I, I noticed that it's, it's not just limited to running. Like I used to experience that from time to time, not even on purpose and not even in a negative way, but there'd be certain groups that I would train with. And I was like, oh man, I've been here for a while now and I still feel like I'm in the outskirts. I just can't quite yeah. connect with this group. And I could never figure out whether it was a talent thing or whether it was just a time involved in the group. And I'm sure, you know, there was a number of things. Perhaps it was just the fact that they didn't like my personality. <laughs> I, I never wanted to look at that one. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. But I know that like right after I left, when I left, there was quite a few people who left the, the, the program at the same time. And so it went from a group that was like 20 plus people down to 15, 10, 15. And I heard that things smoothed out a lot more when there was less people. So I think it was one of the situations was Roland came into a program that was much larger than he really wanted it to be. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the reason I, I only ever really take on 10 athletes at a max at a time. And it's for that reason. Like obviously yeah. uh, the beauty of the internet is the fact that you can coach people in, in all different areas. Um, but, but one of the things that I find if I start spreading out my energy too thin with too many athletes, that is something that definitely creeps in. You start feeling like, oh crap, I mm-hmm. haven't spoken to, you know, whoever it is for a week or so now I better get in touch. And yeah, I, yeah. Just, I definitely find that I, I sympathize with him in that department because it, it doesn't take much for your, your energy just to be spread too thin. Yeah, you sound like a kind of athlete as well, who just enjoys your own company. Like from, from what you've said, you, do you, did you enjoy getting out there and doing a lot of the training by yourself? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, majority of my career are trained by myself. Um, I mean, uh, other than a period of time um, for one year that uh, Sam Chalanga um, trained with me, um, I trained completely solo um, until the very end, most recently when I hired a training partner to, to move out and, and start training with me. Um, so the, the vast majority, 95% of my career, um, I was running everything by myself. Uh, a very lucky day would be somebody would be at the track holding a stopwatch for me. That would be like a 
prime day. Um, but it was mostly just me doing doing my thing by myself. And there's aspects that I enjoyed of that. Um, the biggest thing is, you know, going out for an easy run. Um, I can run exactly how my body wanted to. Um, I could run the time of day I wanted to. Um, so I could sleep in and, and still get my double in, but just spread them out a little bit different. Um, and um, the biggest thing was just I could run as slow or as fast as I wanted to an easy day. Uh, most of my workouts were more tempo threshold based. And those, again, are more feel than a prescribed pace. And so I think that um, it was, I was much better at being able to find that effort and not get pushed to go too hard or, or you know, held back to go too, too slow. I, I could run that level um, very well. Uh, but the times I did train with other people, it was so much easier. Um, I could run so many more harder workouts. And those were when my best times came, um, was off the back of, of training with other people. So I don't think I ever reached the level that I could have had I trained with partner training partners the entire time throughout my career. Um, but I knew after I moved out to Eugene and spent a year out in Eugene, because that's where people told me that I had to go if I wanted to be a professional athlete. I had where do you go? You go to Eugene. Where do you, who do you join? You join the Oregon Track Club. Um, and I realized that wasn't the path for me. Um, and so when I did move back to the East Coast, um, I made a firm pact that I was going to do my training for me and what made me happy. And for me, being happy was being here and being happy with my life outside of running. Um, and, and as long as that is fine, then I can make the running work. And I, and, and, um, that was basically, I wasn't, I wasn't willing to compromise, uh, my life outside of the sport, um, to try to find that extra edge. Um, and I think, uh, there's no way that my career would have been as long as it is, has been, um, if I went a different route. Yeah really interesting that you mentioned that uh back when you were younger you were told that if you wanted to be a professional athlete that's where you need to go and i mentioned and i was serious before when i said if i was good enough i would have probably <laughs> tried to get into oregon it's a very similar story here like i know there's a number of other colleges um around america that has a, a really good college system that a, a number of aussies have gone to and, and plenty of americans run it but um i wonder how much that has to do with to go back to your original point about the internet and just being aware of all the groups out there and especially in america i mean here in australia we've got a number of great like really really good groups um both community level professional level some combining both of those but to look at the states at the moment and i mean i put you in this category now with with what you've started i'm interested to hear more about that but i mean from tin man elite to a number of the groups all around the country it seems as though i mean oregon's one of many options now yeah or it is one of many options, but where are all the options, right? They're all clustered in certain spots. And so it's still, if you're a runner in the United States and, and you want to go somewhere, where do you go? You have to go to Boulder, you go to Flagstaff. Those are really, or you go to Oregon, right? Those are like the three options. Um, and so a lot of that is social media driven. A lot of that is, you know, driven because one group has some success and then it's deemed everybody has to go there to have success. Um, I'm a firm believer that if it works for one person, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work for you. You got to find out what works for you. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why I've been trying to really start up this Northwoods Athletics group um, 
where showing there is other options and you can make um, options and, and opportunities for yourself in other places. Um, you don't have to go to these places just because that's where people say you have to go. Um, you should go to a place because you actually want to be there and you want to live there and you like the lifestyle there. Um, and, and so for me, that's New England. I love New England. Um, I think the, there's better training here than, than anywhere else in the United States. Um, and so it's a, it's a shame that people don't know much about these other training venues that are out there. And I'm, and I'm sure there's you know many of them throughout the country that are way overlooked um, that could be phenomenal training groups uh, based out of there. But everybody just gets on this bandwagon that you have to go to Boulder, you have to go to Flagstaff. Um, and I've always shunned that idea that, you know, you can, you can go where you want to go. That's <laughs> yeah, true. We were laughing on here a while ago. I think I was speaking to him uh, about it, Pat Tiernan. I'm yep. gonna, I, I can't remember. You might know better than me. Do you know where he's based right now? I want to say it's like North Carolina. Yeah, I think so. I think the like Durham, Raleigh, Triangle area there. Yeah, North Carolina. See, I thought that was yeah where you went if you wanted to be Michael Jordan, but apparently there's a, <laughs> there's a number of uh, of athletes starting to to get a bit of a reputation there. And I mean, if Pat Tiernan moves there, he's a two eleven man on debut at twenty seven yeah. twenty man or whatever. I mean, it speaks volumes as to the fact that, or to emphasize your point that there's there's more than one option now. But I, I'm interested to hear more about um, your sort of move back east because it, it must have been not humbling, but it, it would have been a challenge at a younger age like that to be told, okay, you want to be professional, go here, do this. And then getting there and being a little disenfranchised or disconnected from, you know, the group or whatever you thought it was that was going to be just didn't quite live up to the expectations. Was it hard to go back to the the East Coast? Had you sort of decided at that point um, that you were, you were happy just to train by yourself? Or were you thinking, oh, I'll, I'll get a coach? Or, or were you sort of, I know you said a lot of your training was by yourself, but were you self-coached as well? So when I went back, uh, I made a decision that I was going to go back, uh, thinking that I'd just go back and train by myself. Um, but serendipitously, there was a new track program that started in Hanover, New Hampshire, where I moved back to, or my I went to college, uh, starting up right when I left. Um, and it was coached by Tim Bro. Um, and so I, I did that. Uh, that was phenomenal. Oh, for that's a name I haven't heard of for a while. He was I a know. steeplechaser, wasn't he? Yeah, exactly, Dude, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Sorry to interrupt. They just rung a bell. I was like, I know that name. Yeah, he was a wild yeah. man. I loved him. Great. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so that was great. Um, but that fizzled out very quickly. Um, that was only around for just under two years, I want to say. Um, and so after that, uh, I was fully on my own, um, and I trained under Tim Bro still for a few years. Um, and then uh, started working with uh, Mark Coogan, um, who uh, was the Dartmouth coach at the time, of uh, the Dartmouth women's coach, uh, and trained with him for a while. Um, and then he had a uh, conflict of interest contractually with New Balance once he left Dartmouth and was no longer able to work with me. And so I uh, did some coaching, uh, self-coaching myself, Went back with uh, Tim Bro for a bit, self-coached some more, uh, and then worked with uh, Ray Tracy um, out of uh, Providence. Mm -hmm. um, yep. Yeah. Yeah. And how much did your training vary from from that point? I know your, your career sort of spans quite a number of years, so I could be a little bit more specific. But um, when you were running your fastest times, and I hope they were around the same time, like your 27-14 and your 
1302. Like, no, those were those were um, a long time apart. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's actually. I mean, that could be. Uh, that could actually make this conversation more interesting. How uh, yeah. uh, do you know the the years of uh, those are eight between... years apart? Maybe? Wow. Okay. So what, nine, what ten years apart, first? maybe. Wow. So the the five k first. Okay. Uh, yep. And uh, that I was uh, working with Mark Coogan then, um, and that's when I was training with Sam Chalanga. Um, and yep. Uh, and then the, the 2714 was just a few years ago, um, when I was working with Ray Tracy and I had, uh, a training partner that I hired, Dan Kurtz, um, who's still in the area, um, running with me. Awesome. Um, yeah. How different was your training, uh, in between those, those quite a bit different, two PBs? quite a bit different. Yeah. yeah I, know, I could be testing your memory going back a decade, but like, was your, uh, what did your weekly structure look like when you, you ran your 1302? In terms of how how did you divide up the miles and the speed? Yeah. And um, so, uh, let's see if I can remember correctly. It was a it was a lot of so. Uh, Kukin had me on the the standard week schedule um, in you know calendar week schedule of of you know the universities where you know you you typically Monday easy Tuesday workout Wednesday you know slightly longer run. Uh, Thursday easy, Friday workout, Saturday easy, Sunday long, mm-hmm. uh, and that was that was the plan under Coogan. Um, did a lot of uh, mixed workout of um, threshold tempo work with speed, um, but a lot of high volume. And so uh, I was I was actually looking back at the training under Coogan um, a little while ago, and a, a typical workout may be. Uh, five by a K in two fifty, uh, then a twenty minute tempo, so a four mile uh, tempo, uh, and then another five by a K in like two forty five. Um, so I would get a pretty good volume, or I do a twenty minute tempo, a bunch of two minute hill reps, and then another twenty minute tempo. Um, there's a lot of you know tempo stuff with with some speed around on the sides. Um, but most workouts uh, would be eight to eleven miles of, of volume in the workout, and then you know warm up and cool down. Gee, um, rarely did anything especially fast. Rarely did anything that was uh, you know five k race pace. Um, that those were very uh, few and far between. Yeah, um, and so it was a different. And then uh, long runs every weekend would be you know, 18 to 20 miles, um, and running six minute pace. Um, so slightly not hard, hard long runs, but, you know, moving long runs. Um, whereas with, uh, Ray Tracy, he spreads everything out a little bit more and it's more of like a 10 day cycle. Um, and so the mileage was a lot higher. Um, I was probably running an additional 20 miles a week. Um, if, you know, rolling seven day, uh, and the workouts were faster. Um, and so a workout, uh, under Tracy leading up would be, uh, what would be one, uh, 10 times, uh, 600 meters in, uh, 131 and then a few 300s quick afterwards. Um, or he did a lot of, uh, um, he liked the two by 20 minute tempos a lot. Um, and he liked a lot of, uh, mile and a half repeats. 
Um, and so it was a, a different, it was a more grinding without question. Uh, Ray Tracy was a lot more grinding of a workout. Um, uh, whereas Coogan was a lot of bopping around between run fast, uh, run re- fairly relaxed, run fast, run re- fairly relaxed. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that, um, even the earlier one, it still sounds like you were covering quite a few miles. Like I know you said, Oh yeah. So I've got the coach's names muddled up. I can't remember which one was before and which one was after, but, uh, that the earlier one sounded like you were still Coogan. ticking off yeah. that Coogan. You were, you're still yeah. ticking off quite a few miles. Oh um, yeah, and I love the fact that you're saying you weren't doing anything too incredibly fast. There'd be so many audience members disgusted at you that you mentioned the second uh, set of five by a K were two forty fives. But I guess it's all all in context of the times that you were running. But yeah, um, yeah so on a, a weekly sort of rolling average, what were you doing in terms of miles uh, with Coogan in comparison? So Coogan would probably be closer to ninety to ninety five, probably average wise. Yeah. Um, and uh, under Ray Tracy, it would be uh, 115 to 120. So what's that, 860? Oh, so close to 200 kilometers. Or I don't know if you know your metric system well, but I think, is that right? 160K is 100 miles. Sorry, 100 miles is 160K, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, so you were, man, that's uh, like in terms of going back to the time consumption element, that's where the Nordic ski has got to come out in you because that's, yeah. <laughs> that's a huge time commitment. So in terms of, uh, doubles and things like that. What would you be doing for your, your double runs? I mean, I double all the time. Um, like a 12, five, 12 miles in the morning, five in the afternoon was a standard easy day. Yes. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's uh, that's unbelievable. And did you feel like your body, well, obviously it was responding well in the sense that you ran fast off that, but was that something you were able to maintain for a long time? Um, I was with Ray for maybe five years I want to say um but doing race training solo was very challenging (laughs) and so uh I was getting burnt out um at the end um doing doing that training solo uh doing it with other people was fine like when I had Dan Kurtz as a training partner um it was it was fine but doing that work solo was very challenging uh, because Coogan's workouts were um, so much more change of speed, uh, it, mentally it's a lot easier to do that um, by yourself. Uh, because even if you're tired, you can go and hop out and do a 20-minute tempo uh, by yourself and, and still getting good work. Um, and, and all the fast stuff was, was quite short in duration. Um, Ray Tracy loved the workout where... You, gr- you have to grind one extra lap on the track than you actually want to. And it makes you very tough and it makes you very strong, no doubt. Um, he's had great success and, and I ran well under him. But that's hard to do solo. <laughs> and, and when I had training partners that helped me through majority of the workouts, uh, Ray Tracy's workouts were much more manageable and, and fun, um, but, but not as much completely solo <laughs> yeah did, did your body hold up well in terms of injury it sounds like just the fact that you've ran so fast and been able to endure so so much of this um just long mileage style training or at least from my perspective it sounds very long miles uh that, that you were naturally pretty strong guy did you struggle with injuries at all or did you get you get away with it pretty easily um i've gotten very lucky in not having many injuries that actually take me out mm-hmm. but i mean i'm a runner so i never I don't think I ever had a week where I wasn't in pain running. <laughs> and, uh, the, you know, most mornings you, I wouldn't be able to 
doing the track workouts. Um, I was I wouldn't be able to you know walk to the bathroom in the morning normally. I'd be hobbling about. <laughs> um, it'd take me a while to warm up. Um, and it wasn't until I did my first marathon build with with Ray that the paces came way down slower, right? Um, and uh, the mileage went up even more. Uh, but the body responded to that even more. And that could just been from age. Um, but that's when I stopped being in so much pain all the time um, is when we kind of got off the track and, and started doing a little bit more longer, longer distance training. Yeah. And what do you got your eyes on at the moment? Are you, are, are you still eyeing off some good marathons? Uh, we'll see. So um, currently nothing's on the schedule. Uh, I raced Boston this past um uh, spring it went terribly um oh, i didn't see you don't have to tell oh, me yeah. what what went wrong there oh i don't who, who knows <laughs> <laughs> uh it was one of those ones where you uh start the start and uh you get about a mile in and you know right from there it's going to be a very long day uh it almost felt like <clears throat> the only way i can describe it to myself is uh i went in with like the gas tank half full um I, I never felt like I, and it wasn't that I was like not eating well leading in. It was, or, or tapered down. I, I did both of those, but it just didn't feel like I was fully energized right from the start. And it was a very long slog. Uh, I think I ran 216, 217, um, but it was, it was, it was quite brutal. And uh, I was so burnt out that uh I'm just now getting back into like resemblance of training. Yeah. Uh, I've been exercising. I've been running, you know, 60 to, to 80 miles a week. But um, just now is when I'm starting to like feel life back, back in my body. <laughs> <laughs> I know uh, you, you mentioned the, the finish time, but even though you felt so average, did you still go out at a pace? Like we, what did you go through half in? Oh no, I was, I was out by then by, um, in Boston by what is it? Seven miles. I was like, I'm full on bonks. I'm not, I'm not going to make it to the finish line. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. Yeah. That's... It was, it was, um, a, a rough, rough race. Um, yeah. <laughs> what, what have you run for a marathon? Uh, I raced, that was my second marathon. I raced New York city uh, as my debut. Um, and would we run there? Um, I don't know, 212, I think, or oh, something wow. like that. Oh, wow. Because not renowned uh, to be a super quick race either. It's quite no. twist and turny, isn't it? I remember yeah. whenever an Aussie goes over there to run, I'm like, oh, they're obviously there for – they've been paid to be there or yeah. they're there for prize money because no one's exactly. gone there to, to break PBs, are they? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Man, so if you – like, assuming I mean that I know you said you're taking it easy and exercising it. 90 miles a week or whatever it was. But um, if you, if you were to start targeting another marathon, what do you, like, have you got your eyes on, on next year at all in Paris? Like, would you, are you looking to qualify? Um, to be honest, <clears throat> the idea of racing the Olympics is not something that sparks anything in me. Yeah. Um, so I think a, a major marathon uh, would be more interesting to me than, uh, say, say the, the Olympic marathon. Um, so yeah, uh, maybe redemption of, at Boston. <laughs> it's funny you say that though, because it's, I often look at the world of tennis and you look at the four majors that they have in the tennis world, like a Wimbledon means so much more to a tennis player than an Olympic title. 
And I don't know that you can make that comparison directly with with distance running. But I think like if it's a Berlin marathon or a London marathon, it'd be interesting to speak to a number of athletes about, I mean, you can't really get past the childhood dream of the Olympics for a lot of people. But No, but financially, a world marathon major victory is, is a whole lot more lucrative than, a, sure. than an Olympic uh, medal for, for the for the marathon, yeah. Probably true in tennis as well. I mean, they're not yeah. taking too much from an Olympic victory comparison to <laughs> sort of a Wimbledon. Exactly. Uh, awesome, man. <laughs> Um, and and uh, in terms of your coaching now, like I've been enjoying uh, the last couple of days having a good look at your website and seeing what you've created um, yeah. over there in the coaching front. It, uh, oh, Mandy, yeah. do you want to do you want to speak to that a little bit? I'll, I'll make sure at the start of this, people will hear about it, and I'll have the show notes and everything linked to it for people <laughs> interested. But I mean, it'd be it'd be interesting to hear it from you what you've what you've sort of launched out to to create with that. Yeah, no. Um, so we launched out this. <clears throat> it's a uh, it's a club, Northwoods Athletics, and we're just trying to. Um, showcase the upper valley is what we call it, the area that we live in um and we think this has some of the best training in, in all of the united states and um so in an ideal world we're going to try to get um kind of like an elite training center group here um but also want to really uh emphasize just running in general um and so a lot of community outreach we do a weekly group run in the area uh we just launched a race series through Strava, uh, in, in the, in the, in the area. Um, so it's a lot of exciting and, and, uh, doing some coaching as well, um, which has been a lot of fun. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, we're trying to, trying to grow it out. <laughs> who, who put your website together? It looks awesome. I'm such a, I'm such a fan for a nice website and I looked at yours oh, yeah? and it looks oh, as thanks. though it's been done professionally. And I, I looked at yours and thought, okay, mine needs to, mine needs to be uh, touched <laughs> up a little. No, you're, you're being too kind. No, that's, uh, that was just us, uh, the three of us on, on, on the team, just <laughs> chipping away at it. <laughs> You've nailed it. Was it Squarespace? Yeah, it's just Squarespace. Yeah. Wow, good job. I'm going to have to go and do some yeah. research on the template and you might see some. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> nah, awesome, man. Well, hey, I won't hold you up, but uh, mate, thanks so much for coming on. So good to be able to pick yeah. your brain and hear a little bit more about uh, the story behind the results. It's, it's. I mean, I've, I've admired your, your runs from a distance for quite a while since back in the college days. So it's nice to actually get a chance to sit down and have a chat to you. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. You know, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, Awesome, man. <laughs> a lot hey, of fun. We'll leave it there. I'll see you later, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Relaxed Running Podcast. If you're ready to become a faster, more efficient runner, visit www.relaxedrunning.com.